That is perhaps the most famous piece of classical music uh, today. And that's, of course, George Friedrich Handel's music. We know him as the composer of Messiah, from which this Hallelujah Chorus comes. During his lifetime, Handel's music reached from court to theater, echoed in cathedrals, filled crowded taverns. But the man himself is a bit of a mystery. He took meticulous care of his musical manuscripts, but very little survives which would reveal the man. One document offers a narrow window into his personal life. That's his will. And it remembers not only family and colleagues, but also neighborhood friends. MIT professor emeritus Ellen Harris went in search of the private man behind the public figure. She spent years tracking down letters, diaries, personal accounts, legal cases, other documents connected with these bequests. And in her interesting new book, George Friedrich Handel, A Life with Friends, she layers the interconnecting stories of Handel's friends like the subjects and counter-subjects of a fugue, introducing us to an ambitious, shrewd, generous, brilliant, and flawed man hiding in full view behind his public persona. We welcome in Ellen Harris uh, from uh, Massachusetts. Uh, are you on the campus of MIT? Yes, I am. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to the program. Glad you uh, take some time to be with us. Uh, so you say you, your purpose in this book is there are other biographies. You're trying to uncover the private person behind the public persona. And that, as I said in the open, is could uh, be uh, somewhat difficult. You had to get to him through sort of a refractory method, through his friends. Absolutely. Well, he he does not leave any personal tracks other than his music, which is the largest written record we have of the man. Um, but his friends left extensive written records, which is fascinating. And um, once I realized that I could approach the friends and identify them through the will, I went off on a marvelous search through archives and um, various libraries and spent probably... 12 or 13 years doing this and feeling a little bit like Sherlock Holmes, but <laughs> it was a wonderful time. And I only hope that I have succeeded somewhat in uncovering Handel. My sense is, of course, that I have. I want to uh, situate him today as, as much. You write in, in your book that uh, this Hallelujah Chorus, perhaps the most well-known piece of classical music today. And this is this was composed, I'm not sure of the exact year, the, the first half of the 1700s. Yes, it was um, composed in 1740. Uh, so and, and, and so we've all seen those YouTube, you know, flash mobs uh, performing yes. early chorus and such. This still resonates today. Messiah played, you know, uh, every year in many areas of the country. Why why is Handel's music lasted? Well, Messiah in particular, I believe, um, has this enormous resonance in part because of the wonderful choruses. He is, he's telling, of course, a fantastic story, but with the choruses, he really begins to pull the audience in, and I think you feel that with the Hallelujah Chorus. It's almost impossible not to feel the joy of that particular movement, so that the joy and the triumph um, resonate when you hear it, and in fact, at the beginning of your program, when it began playing, I was very tempted to join in myself. I think <laughs> that I'm... is uh, that is what happens, and that's why the flash mobs work so particularly yeah. well. Uh, well, I wish, um, you, I wish you would have. Choruses, so. I think, are important. I, I, I just want to add that I think, of course, the arias add to that, because with the arias, you move from the community to the individual, and... Perhaps there's not a piece of music more moving than he was despised. 
which is an extraordinary piece of music and, and written by Handel for a theater singer. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that, in fact, you can hear it, I think, in the music, is that she's not an operatic singer. She's a theater singer, and Handel takes those words and he breaks them into short phrases, which, of course, emphasize the sorrow, but makes it very easy in many ways to sing. I mean, you have, he was despised, despised and rejected. And being a theater person, Susanna Sibber is able to present that dramatically. And she was at that time pretty notorious for her personal life. And after she, be, after she finished singing this song at the premiere, one of the clergy in the audience stood up and shouted, For this woman, may all your sins be forgiven. <laughs> wow. I only yeah. wish we did that today. Yeah. It would be fun. Yeah, that, well, that would be. That would, we, we should have mm-hmm. more of that in the classical music uh, world. Um, Absolutely. I wonder if, we, if you could, uh, this might be, before we get into uh, Handle the Man and a very interesting history, and, and you uh, lay out uh, um, you know, the whole tapestry of life in uh, early 18th century London and England and, and points beyond, uh, you, you, you took in the book, you took us through uh, the Hallelujah's Chorus. I wonder if you, let's, let's hear a couple of minutes of the chorus. I'd love to have you take us, take us through that. You, you do some analysis on this. Let, let's hear a couple of minutes of the chorus. So that's just a portion of of the chorus, and I think we all we all know it. It's, it's lovely hearing that. Uh, love to have the whole thing on here, but we want to get into uh, handle the man. Uh, that's by the way, Apollo's Fire, Cleveland Baroque Orchestra on period instruments with Paul Singer's uh, Jeanette Sorrell. There are so many uh, recordings of of Messiah. We just happened to grab this one off off the shelf. Uh, I was fascinated. Uh, Ellen Harris, uh, you uh, were kind of going behind the scenes in your book of the Hallelujah Chorus, explaining why. Um, you know, the why behind why why this is uh, such a lasting piece of music. Well, um, it begins with this jubilation right at the beginning. We get all the hallelujahs, the one coming in after the other layered. You can almost feel 
in fact, the flash mob beginning with the hallelujahs at the beginning. And then we get to the statement, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And suddenly, all the voices come together, and they sing just a single melodic line, so that there is this sense of, of complete omnipotence in the line. There isn't now a divergence of time or a divergence of rhythm or a kind of shouting, but a pulling together what in music is called monophony, which depicts, I believe, the monotheistic God. For the one God, the Lord God, omnipotent reigneth, uh, you get musical monophony. And that's very powerful. And as Handel introduces that, then slowly he begins playing against it, the Alleluias. And that, of course, is enormously effective against this single line, this monophonic line with all the chorus singing that, then letting other choral members come in and sing Alleluias against it. Um, it the line itself is fascinating because it leaps up and down in octave, um, which is encompassing the entire musical scale. We normally consider an octave um, a full scale. If you play the C major scale, it goes from C to C. So when you get on the word omnipotent, for the Lord God omnipotent, you get that leap of the octave down and up, which also signifies this sense of completion and of totality. And I think that works beautifully. Um, we then get all these outbursts of the hallelujah. But then we get the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And when you get the kingdom of this world, it's in a very reduced orchestration. It becomes very quiet. Um, and reserves an explosion for um, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And, and I don't know about you, but it doesn't matter to me how many times I hear that. It's always a surprise. It's always so powerful when we go from the kingdom of this world, you know, is become, and then... I can't sing it. <laughs> the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Just um, a huge explosion of, I would say, light and energy as it moves into the highest registers using trumpets and the highest voices. So that you have this sense of, of um, power and majesty that exists outside our own little world. And finally, you get... Uh, and he shall reign forever and ever. We didn't get to hear that. Um, but an important part of the chorus, because as you get in, he shall reign forever and ever, you get it in what in music is called a round, like row, row, row your boat. Of course, this is much more powerful. And one voice line comes in after another after another, singing, for he shall reign forever and ever. And of course, a round can go on indefinitely. It is the one musical form that has no end. You just have to stop it if you're going to stop it, but otherwise it moves into infinity. And for Handel to use that form on and he shall reign forever and ever really does project, I think, Christ's range into eternity. And then, of course, you end with the hallelujahs again, preceded by that wonderful silence where you 
all the exuberant hallelujahs suddenly come to an end, and there's this pause for the final hallelujah by the entire chorus in exactly the same rhythmic values, bringing the whole chorus together at the conclusion on that last word. I think it's an absolutely, well, in many ways, perfect piece of music. And apparently it was composed and orchestrated in 24 days. Is this true? Well, the whole work was. The whole work, yes. Yes, the whole work, yeah. The whole work was, yes, yes. It was actually composed um, and orchestrated in what has to have been a white heat. I mean, Handel was a fast composer, I have to say. There are many works that Handel composed quickly. Um, But this one does amaze me, partly because it's a big work with lots of choruses, um, important orchestration. I, I have often thought if I tried to write this piece down, that is to copy it, not actually to conceive it, but to copy that work with all of the choral and instrumental parts, especially if I had to use a quill pen, I'm not convinced I could do it in 24 days. Yeah, yeah. Dan doesn't have the, you know, the computers and such. Uh, and no, no. He's writing with a quill pen yeah. with an open inkwell. Yeah. Uh, and yet... I'm, and, I'm, uh, go ahead. Yes? No, I'm just going to say that I'm enormously impressed with his fertility of imagination and the way in which he responded to these words. So that makes it all, all the more puzzling, and there's, there's some things behind this, that Charles Jennings, who who did the the pastiche or the arrangement of scripture on which this is based, mm-hmm. was disappointed. He publicly said he's disappointed in this, and he felt like Handel didn't do his best work. He 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 thought he'd done a better work for Samson for another you know composer of of, of the libretto, you might say. Right, right. Well, Handel, in fact, when he finished Messiah, was actually so little spent that he went on and wrote Samson. At least he drafted all of Samson in a similarly short period. But he needed to go back uh, when he actually premiered Samson and um, uh, rewrite some of it and orchestrate it and things like that. So it was not finished. But it was written immediately after Messiah. Handel then went off to Dublin and premiered um, Messiah in Dublin. He did not premiere it in London. And that was really the first thing that irritated Jennings, because Jennings had hoped, of course, that Handel would uh, would expend all of his talent upon it and then perform it in London the next season uh, during Easter week. And Handel took it off, off with him and premiered it in Dublin. And so Jennings began being annoyed when the premiere was taken away from his city. When Handel came back to London and then first performed it in London, and when Jennings first really got to hear it, um, Samson actually had a better reception. And part of that is that there was some resistance uh, in London to having actually the words of the Bible performed in a secular theater. Whereas Handel's dramatic oratorios based on biblical text are dramas, are biblical dramas, Messiah is biblical text. And there was a resistance to that, there was opposition to the secular singers singing this work, and I think Jennings was irritated that Messiah was not an immediate hit in London. So he began complaining about parts of it, and he actually 
demanded that Handel change some of it. And, and ultimately, for the 1745 performance, Handel did make some changes based on some of Jennings's complaints. And this is actually the way we hear Messiah today, um, with some of those changes, which were not wrong. I think we would do just as well to hear the original, but we never hear, for example, the original um, Rejoice Greatly. The original Rejoice Greatly was written in a, a compound meter. It was like a, a traditional wedding song. So it was Rejoice, Rejoice, Rejoice Greatly, Rejoice. And Handel made it much more virtuosic when he moved it into a, a, a straight 4-4 uh, time where you have four beats to a measure rather than groups of three. And that has has stayed with the oratorio uh, to this day. So there are changes like that, and that, of course, that change reduces the amount of that kind of triple time that appears in the in the Christmas section, and it makes uh, Rejoice Greatly really stand out from all of the surrounding music, which in its original composition probably did not so well. So we have to say Jennings was not stupid, um, but he was, um, he certainly wasn't stupid. He was an enormously intelligent man, but he was also, I would have to say, cranky. Mm -hmm. And Handel had to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, more with uh, Ellen Harris. She's author of an interesting new book, George Friedrich Handel, A Life with Friends. Uh, she uh, is trying to get at the man, the uh, private man behind the public persona. She uses a very interesting way to do that, his, his will. And then she uh, goes off from that, uh, investigates his friends and colleagues who are mentioned in, in his will, and uh, gets at the uh, private man, uh, as she says, is, is hiding in plain sight there all the time behind his public persona. We'll get into talking about Handel the Man. We'll hear some more music um, and talk about uh, how Handel's music fit into the politics and many other facets of life in 18th century London. Uh, Ellen uh, Harris says, Oratorios including, uh, I guess, uh, Handel's oratorios helped create a national Protestant identity, and that Messiah became associated with the national ideals of charity. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the 2014 Zion Canyon Music Festival, September 26th and 27th. Offering micro beers, wines, and food, and featuring a lineup of national touring musicians, including Coco Montoya and Bastard Sons of Johnny Cash. Gates open at 3 p.m. More at ZionCanyonMusicFestival.com. One of the most successful movies ever was born out of curiosity. I've said it jokingly, but I think there's a lot of truth to the idea that if I could have actually dived to the Titanic without making the movie, I probably would have done that. <laughs> I'm Guy Raz from Curiosity to Discovery. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thank you. 
You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and uh, we are hearing right there music of George Friedrich Handel. Uh, it's uh, from the aria Bel Piacere from Agrippina. Uh, Kiri Takano was singing there. And an interesting new biography is out. George Friedrich Handel, A Life with Friends, by Ellen Harris, who is Professor Emeritus at MIT. She's taught at Columbia and other places, and uh, she uses an interesting uh, technique to get at Handel, who didn't leave behind much of a personal, intimate nature, took great care of his manuscripts, of course, but she uh, gets to the private man through his friends, especially those mentioned in his will. Uh, So we're talking about George Friedrich Handel, one of the great composers of all time on the program today. If you'd like to join this conversation, we would love to have you do that at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can uh, join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Ellen Harris, I'd like to uh, take uh, Handel's music back to his time, and you say that uh, Handel's music was everywhere, simultaneously the sonic representation of the monarchy and the soundtrack of daily life. I wonder if you could expand on that. I guess it was in the tavern and and, uh, and it represented the monarchy as well. Absolutely. Well, Handel's, I think we all know that Handel's music was a representation of the monarchy. Uh, he wrote the coronation anthems for George II in, in 1727, and one of those, Zadok the Priest, has been performed at every coronation since. Um, and some of the others, but that one at every single coronation. So I look forward to that when Charles becomes king. I assume that they will still play it. Um, and uh, he wrote funeral anthems for Queen Caroline, uh, wedding anthems for um, uh, Prince Frederick, Princess Anne. He wrote uh, the Utrecht Te Deum Jubilate for the peace of um, Utrecht at the end of the... War of Spanish Succession, 1713, that was for Queen Anne. Um, and it goes on and on. We know, of course, the fireworks music, the Dedingham Tadeum. These are all uh, music that was written for the monarchy, for special events um, in the life of the monarchy and the country. In addition, of course, he wrote operas. These were all performed in the opera house. Uh, he wrote uh, concertos that were performed in... Uh, private homes, but also in some concert halls. But instrumental music did not was not performed publicly as much as it is today. So a lot of his instrumental music, his his uh, sonatas and his uh, trio sonatas and his concertos were uh, frequently performed in private performances um, at home or in music clubs. And uh, some of these clubs took place in taverns. And uh, even some of his oratorios, um, Esther uh, is the specific example, was performed in a tavern. Uh, So music was everywhere. It was at home. It was in taverns. Uh, His music was excerpted from many of his big works and then used in the ballad operas that were being performed um, from uh, the Beggar's Opera forward. In fact, there's Handel's music in the Beggar's Opera. So... uh, I do feel as if it's it's really everywhere you turned, it was at the gardens, the pleasure gardens. Handel's music took pride of place at Vauxhall Gardens, where his statue actually was placed um, at the entrance of the gardens. So in 1738, I, I can't think of any other composer who had a statue uh, created and installed publicly in his lifetime. And this seems that there, there's one aspect of this seems strange to me looking from my vantage point, 
This is a, a man who was born in Germany, what became Germany, um, <laughs> yes. who, who went to Italy for, for a time, ended up in London and became a, a national figure. Correct, correct. Uh, well, he, he um, probably being German, had something to do with that, of course. He was in Germany. He went to Italy um, probably in around 1706. Uh, he left Italy in 1710 and took a position in Hanover. And it was, of course, the elector, Georg Ludwig, in Hanover, who was in line to become king in England, following the death of Queen Anne. And this has to do with uh, the, the decision by the Parliament in Great Britain to ensure a Protestant succession, because the son of James II uh, was Catholic, and they wanted to prevent him from uh, uh, coming to the throne. They did not want, in England, a Catholic monarchy. So, in order to get to Georg Ludwig, they had to pass over 57 people in the line of succession. Wow. That is essentially 57 Catholics in order to get to a Protestant. But by taking employment with the man who was going to become King of England, and this was well known, um, Handel assured himself passage to London. And when the king came over in 1714, Handel's music was immediately played for him. Uh, the the king, then George I, uh, immediately uh, continued the allowance he had been given by Queen Anne, uh, and in 1723 added to it. And as, as far as we know, George I never really learned English. The language of the court was French, in which Handel was absolutely fluent, but in any private occasion, I'm sure that Handel and George I and other members of the royal family could speak German to each other. And I think it is likely that Handel's German heritage made it easier for him to become um, a national figure in London following the Hanoverian succession. Of course, in 1727, Handel became a naturalized English citizen. This is at the time of the right around the coronation of George II, who was about Handel's age. And Handel changed his name from the, Germ from the German formulation at that time to the English formulation that we all use today of George Friedrich Handel, uh, whereas in Germany his name is Georg Friedrich Handel. And uh, in fact, in Germany, they continue to use the German formulation and an and older scholar once described that as the battle of the umlaut over the a and the name handel <laughs> right. whether you put the two dots yeah. over the a or not yes I've, um, I've, which is a very funny way of putting it yeah yeah it is i wonder um before we jump into the the politics here and the, the oratorios were very much uh, part of this in this milieu in any in any case the oratorios helped to you say create a national protestant identity if we could go back to his early years uh his father was in his 60s when he was born, right? To the second wife. That's correct. And mm -hmm. he, he decreed that there be no musical instruments around, and even if he, young Georg, you know, traveled somewhere, there'd be no musical instruments. He wanted his son, Dermot's son, to be, become a lawyer, I guess, going to law. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is the story we have through a biography of Handel that was published only the year after Handel died. Um, it was written by John, Man John Mannering, but... Um, 
all of his information about Handel's early life and about Handel's father un- undoubtedly came directly, either directly or secondhand from Handel, who loved regaling his friends with stories about uh, his earlier years before coming to England. And so this was Handel's uh, own depiction of his youth, and I, there has to be some truth to it. I'm not sure his father was quite as awful as he depicts him being, but I think his father was uh, important to him in his insistence, I would guess, that he get a really fine education. Handel did, in fact, matriculate at the University of Halle, so he had some university education. And uh, all of this has to have been enormously important to Handel's success in later life. So how did he get into music then? He he was, you know, the father was trying to, you know, keep him away. <laughs> well, he he went uh, with his father uh, to visit various courts. He went to Weissenfels uh, with his father, where his half-brother actually worked. And it was there that uh, the Duke heard Handel play, because Handel had been working on his little clavichord in the attic, according to the story he tells. And it played marvelously as a very young boy of about seven. And the Duke insisted that the boy should be receiving musical education and said to his father that, you know, although a father should be able to determine the future of his own child, it was important that the talents be developed as well. And he really hoped that uh, the young Handel would be allowed to study music as well as the kinds of subjects that would lead him to civil law. And in fact, that happened. It was immediately after that trip that Handel began studying with the musical cantor in Halle, whose name was Zacho, and Handel studied music with him for years. Uh, we are so talking. So he got a traditional yes, go ahead. German education in that sense. Oh, uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Ellen Harris. She's professor emeritus at MIT. She's written a biography of Handel, George Friedrich Handel, A Life with Friends. And she says she's trying to get at the private man behind the public persona. She does that through his friends. We'll get into talking about uh, about some of his friends, very interesting friends that he did have. Um, and uh, before we take another break, this question, which came in by email, you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, and you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. By the way, we're going to be a little shorter today in the program, about 50 past, so uh, if you want to get in your call or email, get those in right now. That's because of our fun drive. And uh, we want to, uh, to tell you a bit about about the number you can call, which, by the way, is the same number. So you can use that to uh, give us a donation and to uh, and to call the program as well. This is Brian in Hyde Park. He says, "How religious was Handel?" Um, I suspect Handel was uh, an extremely spiritual man. Um, he. When he moved into his house in Brook Street, which is in St. George Hanover Square, uh, he became a member of that parish, and he is recorded as having attended those services um, regularly and um, for his very devout appearance at the church services. Uh, He was, of course, himself a Lutheran uh, from Germany, um, and... When he was in Italy, there was an attempt to convert him to Catholicism. 
and which would have been necessary, I think, if he had stayed in Italy and as a professional composer. But he resisted that um, and said that uh, he wanted to stay in the um, profession of faith in which he was born, uh, sort of whether right or wrong, that he wanted to do that. Um, in England, um, he remained Protestant but did practice in the Church of England. Um, I think that there are great parallels between the Church of England and Lutheranism, so I think that that is not a surprise. And, of course, there was a Lutheran chapel also at St. James's, so, and the royal family were Lutheran and Church of England at the same time, so Handel was the same as the royal family. But from all outward appearances in terms of his church attendance, yeah, certainly um, he was a religious man. And I really think you can hear that in his music. I don't think that Messiah would sound the way it sounds if he were simply um, setting words to music that did not have meaning to him. So I think you can hear that in his oratorios, and I think you can hear it in the depth of emotion in some of the very late works, uh, when you get to Jephthah, for example, and um, you hear Jephthah singing about the possible death of his daughter um, deeper and deeper still, or waft her angels to the sky. Uh, his, his arias about angels uh, seem to me very real. We'll take another break. I hope that answers the question. Yes, I, I think so. And, and Brian, oh, you're welcome to email back if it did not. So uh, the email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can call 1-800-826-1495. When we come back, some very interesting people surrounding Handel. We'll get into describing the man himself, what Ellen Harris came up with at the end of this uh, long project, an interesting biography. And this idea, uh, in the early 18th century in uh, in England, there's a heavy political tension between national religion and religious freedom. Handel was right in the middle of that with his oratorios. More on that when we come back. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, featuring savory European-style breakfast treats, such as quiches and a revolving menu of lunch sandwiches, such as artichoke basil and fresh mozzarella, Information at crumbbrothers.com. Next time on Living on Earth, biologist Kamal Bawa finds the answer to a knotty problem. Tropical rainforests are full of a large number of species. Two individuals of the same species may be as far as one kilometer. So the question is, how are they reproducing? His research on this helps him earn a $100,000 prize. I'm Steve Kerwood. That's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Ellen Harris. She's Professor Emeritus at MIT. She's written an interesting new bi- biography, George Friedrich Handel, A Life with Friends. We heard some more music of Handel there. That's from Julius Caesar. That was uh, Beverly Sills as Cleopatra, fearing the death of her lover. Uh, she prays to the gods for mercy. Uh, Ellen Harris, I, I threw that in because that's one of my favorite passages in all of opera. Uh, just just so beautiful. Love that counter melody in the orchestra. It actually brought tears to my eyes just listening to it now. It's it's so, um, it's, as you say, the counter melody, the melody she is singing. Beverly Sills does a very nice job of it, you know. So that's a nice thing. Let's, we do have another email who, uh, which came in, and uh, let's get to this. This is Steve. He says, why would Handel leave his estate to friends? Didn't he have surviving family members to bequeath it to? So far, you've not spoken much of wife and children. Ah, well, Handel never married. So there was no wife, and there were no children. Uh, he did leave um, his residuary legatee, that is, the person who received all of the rest of his estate once the specific gifts were given out, was to his only living blood relative at that time, who was his niece, uh, Joanna Frederica Flirton. Um, She was the daughter of his only surviving sister, and uh, at the time of his death, she was the only surviving blood relative in the Handel family. And so, yes, he he did leave money to his family, to the only surviving relative that he had. And uh, she did then, um, there there were other gifts to other more distant relatives in London, in, uh, excuse me, in, in Germany, and she oversaw those some time after his death. But the all the money that went to Germany went to her for distribution. Um, so... The friends were the people with whom he lived on a daily basis. They were his closest friends, since he had no wife and he had no children, Um, that these were the people he saw, he socialized with, he cared about. These are people who came to his house to hear him sing through works that he was composing or to hear the earliest rehearsals of his works at his house in Brook Street before they went on to um, be rehearsed in the opera house. Uh, these are people who had Handel over to their houses for parties where Handel performed for them. And, and uh, one wonderful party where Mrs. Delaney writes that Handel played the harpsichord and all the ladies sang. So that must have been a wonderful event. And uh, Anne Donellan, one of his friends who lived very close by him just off Barclay Square, is uh, a house to which he went to play her harpsichord um, even in the very last years of his life when he was totally blind. So these were people who were extremely close to him, people who were called by um, uh, writers of the 18th century in terms of the both Joseph Goopy and James Hunter described as his intimate friends. These are people who were um, intimate with Handel, with his life, and, and with his music. And uh, you write, interestingly, um, th- this group of, uh, of women, especially, uh, lived outside the boundaries of conventional marriage. They were this outside of convention. Well, it, it, the, we, I mentioned Mrs. Delaney. She was forced into a marriage at the age of 17 to a man who was in his 60s, whom she hated and found disgusting. Uh, he was an alcoholic. He was apparently dirty. Um, 
But one did not have a choice in marriage frequently, especially if you were in the minor aristocracy. Marriages were arranged. Um, Luckily for her, her husband died after about seven years of marriage, so she became a widow. And in um, the 1740s, she married a man she chose, the Reverend Patrick Delaney. And even at that age, uh, there was strong opposition from her family, and it led to her being eliminated from various wills in the family um, because she had broken with tradition by not marrying according to the desires of the family. Um, Anne Donella never married and actually um, turned down a marriage that would have been very beneficial to her and to the family, and she remained single all of her life. Elizabeth Maine married, uh, but she ended up marrying a man who actually had been convicted of murdering a prostitute in um, Exeter some years previous, so that seems somewhat unusual to me as well. Um, when he died, she lived a widow the rest of her life and never remarried. So it, it, these are not normal stories in the sense of a normative marriage, and um, this is true of all of Handel's friends. His his friend Joseph Goopy never married. Um, his friend James Hunter married uh, without permission of his family at the age of 17 and lied on his marriage license in order to be able to marry and said that he was over 21. Um, and he ended up uh, being estranged from his family for having done that. Um, so, yes, they're all a little odd in terms of uh, what they chose to do uh, in an era when uh, arranged marriages were the most common thing. I want to um, I want to get into this idea of religious tolerance and handle his friends uh, had had a strong belief in religious tolerance. Uh, you, you can see that in his oratorios. You say, I found this passage so interesting. I, I just have to bring this up. You get into this idea of bedlam. And how people were, uh, how mentally ill were treated at, at the time. This is the early mm. first half of the 18th century. And so James Goopy, right. who you've mentioned, he had a mistress who apparently went, had mental illness, went insane, whatever. And he could not bear, uh, as a former mistress from his youth, I suppose, uh, he could not bear to have her go into an insane asylum. So he cared for her. And this apparently exhausted his financial resources. Uh, but I wonder if you could talk about this um, Side of bedlam, and, and even that you could you could pay a fee and go and gawk at the mentally ill. Yes, well, I mean this this is actually depicted in the Hogarth uh, painting of bedlam uh, that that comes from his um, uh, depiction of Tom Rakewell, the Rake's Progress, where Rakewell ends up at the end um, in bedlam, and um, his beloved whom he has left comes to try to take care of him but there are two society women standing and gaping at all of these uh, very disturbed people who um, are kept in bedlam some of them are chained Um, they're not taken care of they're just isolated from society Uh, and it really uh, is very appalling that this actually went on and that the mad were used as a diversion. It was like a circus event to be able to go and see them. Um, I think Hogarth's image of this, which I reproduce in the book, it was um, something that went a long way toward correcting the situation in London so that uh, better care was taken. But Goopy sold all the paintings he had in order to try to support this woman that... um, 
and and to create a fund for her after after his death he asked that all of his paintings be sold uh so that a fund could be created that she could be kept at home um and not sent to an asylum uh you say in the book that, and I want to talk about this, uh, we're, we're coming down to the end of the program, this idea of religious tolerance. Uh, so Handel's friends, their belief systems ranged from Hutchinsonism to deism. Um, and uh, Handel was very important with his oratorios in coming down on this, uh, this political tension mentioned before to a national religion and religious freedom. He, he came down on the idea of religious tolerance. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. Well, Handel spoke about uh, the importance of religious tolerance and letting people um, continue in the religion that they wanted to be in rather than being forced to be in a religion to which they couldn't uh, ascribe. So that is um, that makes perfect sense in that in, in, in that regard, that he felt for others the same way he felt for himself, that he wanted to continue in his own religion, and he felt others could as well. You, you see this in two works in particular, at the beginning and the end of his oratorios. In, in Esther, that he first wrote in 1718, uh, tells the biblical story of Esther, uh, where uh, her the, the Jewish people um, are uh, going to be eliminated and uh, at, at the behest of the evil minister Haman and she comes to her husband to explain to him that in fact she is of that community which he had not known and doing so risks her life and the sense of the protection of the Jewish community from from extermination um, from religious intolerance uh, is the feature of this story and the feature of Handel's setting. Late in life, he wrote Theodora, which is a historical story and not a biblical narrative, and the only such that he actually composed, which talks of persecution against Christians in ancient Rome. And Theodora is actually put to death because she refuses to worship the pagan gods and insists on maintaining her Christianity. So at both ends of his career, he is actually working with topics of religious intolerance and arguing within them, within his music, for um, a religious freedom, a religious tolerance uh, for people to worship in their own way. We just have a couple minutes left, and um... I wonder if we could we could sum up with uh, this is unfair, but uh, spent a lot of time with Handel, especially with with this book, trying to get at the private man behind the public persona. What were the a couple things that most surprised you, perhaps, or what what have, what have you come to in terms of Handel the man? Well, he was shrewd. He was financially shrewd. I think he was musically shrewd, and I think you know that's an important aspect of his success. Um, he knew how to manage his career and did manage it. He was perhaps the first really successful composer-entrepreneur in that sense. Uh, and I think that comes out. I think his sense of charity is very important and, and surprising because it's a little different from that of his friends. All of the charitable institutions that he supported were institutions that um, worked to relieve uh, uh, the poverty of children. It was the foundling hospital where uh, children who were deserted uh, could 
be taken in. He uh, supported the uh, musicians, families, when musicians were unable to continue performing for some reason. Um, he actually helped to found a society for um, musicians who were beyond their performing years and to support their families. He did the same for the sons of clergy. And so this man who never married and never had children was a man whose charitable instincts all went towards supporting children of destitute families. That was, uh, you know, that, that is something that I think is very important about the man. Um, he maintained his friendships over years. I think that's important about the man. Um, of course, this, a lot of this for me started in the Bank of England, so looking at all of his financial records uh, was fascinating and wonderful. And you can see that he was conservative um, and did well, ultimately, through his music and through um, conservative investing. So um, a modern man, I would say, um, a, a man very much um, who led the kind of life that we could imagine someone living today, a man who was not foreign to us in time. Uh, we're going to extend the program just by a minute or two, long enough to get in a call here from Margaret in Vernal. Uh, so we're just receiving that call right now. Just a reminder that you're listening uh, to Access Utah. We're talking with Ellen Harris, Professor Emeritus at MIT. George Friedrich Handel, A Life with Friends, is is the book. So do, do we have Margaret? Oh, Margaret, go uh, ahead. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I would just morning, want to add something. But I think uh, Handel was uh, um, an organist at one of the churches in London, and it was just, uh, torn down, I believe, or maybe destroyed during the war. No, it was before the war. Um, and the organ that he played uh, was moved to a church in Worcestershire uh, named Whitley Church. Um, well, Handel never had an official organist position. He played the organ at many of the London churches. Um, he loved the organ at St. Paul's and um, actually helped some of his friends to purchase organs for their own houses um, and actually set up um, the, the qualities of the organ that they should have. He did this, for example, for, um, for Bernard Granville. Um, the... Uh, the attribution of specific organs to Handel and the ones that Handel played, I feel, is a little bit like George Washington slept here, is that uh -huh. there are so many organs that Handel played, and yet it's very hard to identify specifically that Handel's hand was on it, that um, I'm really just not sure uh, for any specific instrument. Um, but he was an organist, and he was an organist... Um, Actually, first and foremost, in all the competitions in Italy, he won all the organ com the mm -hmm. the competitions on organ um, yeah. more so than on harpsichord but but I cannot vouch for any specific organ um, having been actually handel's own well, it, was, it was purchased for a for a, a larger state actually, and eventually became the uh, the village organ. Uh, th I, thank you, uh -huh. Margaret. I lived, I lived close to it until I came over to this country. Oh, oh great. That's ah. how I know about it. Wonderful. And actually, my grandfather was called George Frederick Handel. Oh, really? 
Amazing. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, <laughs> I will look into that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. And we'll, we're, we're out of time. We'll have to end it there. Uh, the book is George Friedrich Handel, A Life with Friends. Ellen Harris, the author. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. And uh, let's uh, let's go out with just a little bit of the concluding chorus, the uh, majestic "Worthy is the Lamb" from uh, from Messiah. Then we have "Wild About Utah," and then the TED Radio Hour is coming up. Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.